Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. In this episode of the podcast, Giovanni's guest today is Michael Nagel, President and CEO of Vomeris Innovations. In this episode, Giovanni and Michael discuss raising money from family offices. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Michael Nagel. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. So Mike, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time jumping on MedTech Money. And before we jump into who you are, and your background, and obviously the company that you're leading these days, I want to give a little bit of context to why we're here and about this podcast. Great. So why we're here. I've, I've talked to thousands of medtech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And, and what I've personally discovered is that there really is no silver bullet or specific formula on how to raise or invest capital in medtech. So my goal here was I wanted to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs, investors, like yourself, in order to help those who can benefit the information from the information um, and for generations of professionals and entrepreneurs to come. So that's that's why we're here. And, and what I imagine this audience being and who's listening to us now is a mixture of experts and novices, those who are starting for the first time and people who might have been there and done that before. Exactly. And so I wanted to extract your stories and insights and advice to share with what I imagine the first time founder or CEO and they have no clue what lies ahead of them on their journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So to make it very simple, and I have two open-ended questions, but the reason why I love having you on this one is because you bring this experience of family offices from an entrepreneurial perspective. And I, and I really think that the idea of family offices is a unique one that is talked about actually more and more these days about being another option for med tech startups out there. And I, I really want to demystify what that looks like. So given your experience of which we'll jump into today, we're going to be talking about family offices within med tech. So let me jump into my two questions for you real quick. My first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? And am I missing anything? That's a, that's a great opening question. I think, you know, from my perspective is that they are two of the, the critical elements, right? Because on, on two different uh, planes is that in, in med tech, normally um, we're putting together as, as leaders and CEOs, we're putting together high performing small teams in which we are asked to accomplish great things. And usually when a med tech company comes together, it's because something, uh, someone has not done that before. So essentially, like I tell people, it's like going to the moon for the first time. 
because if somebody had already done it, you probably wouldn't have a reason for starting your business. <laughs> so the people and the money part are very uh, are very critical. And second of all, you know, it goes with capital. You capital is the lifeblood of any innovation, and different than other type of industries that have startups where people bootstrap it out of their homes or you know nail their credit cards. I'm sure that MedDevice CEOs have done that from time to time but that's not gonna get you to your ultimate goal. So med tech is a very expensive endeavor and it requires things to be done right. And to be done things right, you have to have capital. And I think the other thing um, lastly is, I'll mention that I think I saw a statistic not too long ago, the average med device CEO is 56 years old. Uh, that's quite a bit different than what's portrayed in the media about all these smart young uh, people in their thirties that are starting companies. It does happen in med tech. Um, but it, it is something to remember that, um, that there's a lot of experience that goes along with it. And that that's essential with med tech because of all the different disciplines that need to come together. That's fascinating. Thank you for that statistic. First and foremost, thank you for the validation on the people and money piece. I, I certainly agree with you. And I, I wasn't aware of the statistic of a 56 year old being the average age, but makes sense. Um, the second question I have is, and once again, you're going to tie the, the pieces together very shortly after this one, but as you being an entrepreneur in med tech and leading a med tech company now, if you knew what you know about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why, why not? Or what would you do differently? Uh, boy, emphatically, absolutely. I've loved my time in, in healthcare. And I love being in healthcare for probably the same reason why individuals, people like to invest in healthcare, because not only are you innovating technology, but you're doing something that's got what I call impact investing, or it's got meaning. And so what I tell employees, what I remind our employees all the time that remember that our device, you know, is treating somebody's mother or father or brother or sister. And that's a big responsibility, but it's also gratifying um, to, to, to have that responsibility and that ability to, you know, alleviate human suffering or to make somebody better, or th there's just a lot of good reasons for it. So not only are you doing innovation, but you're also doing something to further the betterment of healthcare and the betterment of, you know, people's better lives. So long story short, you wouldn't change anything and you do it all over again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had a lot of fun doing it. Nice. So without further ado, now the man behind the voice at this point, who is Mike? How do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> where have you come from to get to where you are now? And tell us about the company that you're representing and leading. Uh, well, thanks, Joe. Uh, Mike Nagel. It's real easy, uh, <laughs> I think. Um, but I've been in uh, I've been in med devices. We'll just say over three decades. Um, I've been in small emerging growth companies for probably over twenty years of, of that time. I've done, uh, this will be, this Volmeris Innovations I'm now is my fourth, um, what I call emerging growth company, meaning that when I arrived at each one of the entities I described as being my fourth deal, sales were zero. So really, really starting from a very early stage. I started my career with Abbott Laboratories Diagnostics Division. I started in sales and did a position in marketing and uh, worked my way up through the ranks in, in that area. So I've served as vice president, regional manager, vice president of sales and marketing, chief commercial officer, and then eventually have been CEO at Vomeris for almost 10 years now. Did you go right from corporate to Vomeris? 
Uh, no, I spent uh, about five and a half years with Abbott Laboratories at Diagnostics Division in the go-go days of when diagnostics was really driving a lot of Abbott. Left there, went to a cardiovascular company, a small one back in Minneapolis, and then we were purchased by Bebron Medical. So I had my first kind of small, in a very small way, my first exit. Was lucky enough to stay on with Bebron for another five years and uh, get a lot of good management experience and some more corporate experience. So I had about a decade with, with what I'd call big structured companies. And then left B-Braun, was with a small startup for only a few months, and then left there to, to co-found a company called Vascular Solutions, which we eventually took public and went on to be very successful. But that was kind of how I, how I got started. So obviously you had a multitude of experiences that clearly prepared you for being a CEO of a another smaller organization in MedTech. Yeah, I, I always say that loosely, clearly, clearly prepare me for a CEO. I don't know if I could say that, but, but I would say that, you know, the rigor and discipline that you learn in a big company uh, was essential for me that I carried a lot of the same things to the small startup. And I would say that probably more so the experience that I had with Abbott Laboratories uh, in my early career was essential. I mean, when I got up into marketing, my first boss was um, a gentleman named Miles White, who went on to be CEO of Abbott for well over 20 years. He just recently retired. He was a director of marketing. He then was replaced by a gentleman named Rick Gonzalez. Rick has gone on, now runs AbbVie, which is a major player in the pharmaceutical business. I had exposure to uh, a business unit leader, Art Collins, who went on to run Medtronic. So we had a lot of really super good mentors in those times and learned a lot of good habits in the way successful companies work. And you can take some of those same things and, and put it into a small company. So it's, it, was, it was a pretty influential time in my life. So now that you're leading Vomeris as the CEO, tell us a little bit about Vomeris, what you guys are doing, if you can, whatever you can. Yeah. And then also, um, let's just segue right into that, into how has it been capitalized? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, Maris Innovations, I've been the CEO. I was brought in by the family office that had decided to make an investment in Vomeris. They needed to kind of restructure and recapitalize the company, uh, bring me in to replace the founders of the company. Uh, so I was, I was brought, in, brought in to do that. Vomeris has a unique proprietary technology in the wound care business, uh, in the wound care market, which is a $12 billion market, which makes our technology different is we have biocompatible microcell batteries on our wound care product, we're FDA cleared. And so the difference is we're, we're in the area of bioelectronics or electroceuticals, whatever you wanna call it. We provide a low level electrical field to the wound. And uh, what we're finding out now, and we're about to get results of a randomized trial, uh, we find out that we can uh, not only help the wound heal better through electricity, but also uh, prevent infection, including biofilm, which is superior to the standard of care. So that's the, that's the position we are now in. Um, we're still a small company here, um, but again, I've been, been working for the family office that took control of the, of the business almost 10 years ago. So I think this is where I'm, I'm really excited to get into the juice of the story. So I, I wanted to be able to share with entrepreneurs this idea of family offices being a, an option. Yeah. Um, you know, you have your angel groups, your family and friends, very early stage investing. You have your VCs and yep. now they're breaking up to micro VCs, early stage, later stage, and then private equity, right? But it's almost like you don't get talked about too much or they get pushed off to the side until 
everything else has been exhausted. But tell us about this concept of what is a family office? What role can they play? And then why they should be considered outside of the more traditional sources of capital for a med tech startup. Sure. Well, first of all, I'll give a disclaimer. Uh, my career dealing with the family office I essentially kind of fell into it in, in a way, meaning that um, we I first got exposed to family office, gosh, like 20 years ago when we had raised our kind of angel investment round with Vasker Solutions. And through a recommendation of a small brokerage firm in Minneapolis, we were introduced to the Stevens family in Little Rock, Arkansas. And give a little background, the Stevens family in Little Rock, Arkansas is what I would call, we'll talk about this a little later, they're what I call a second generation family office, meaning that the first generation made a substantial amount of wealth. And then the second generation being the, the, the family, the kids had, tur had turned it into what the second biggest bank off of Wall Street in a very professionally run um, you know, family office as well as investment banking firm. So that was a very, what I call very sophisticated family office. And their first medical device investment was in Vascular Solutions. So we went down there and uh, met the family and uh, established a relationship and they became you know, extremely good shareholders and extremely knowledgeable um, you know, a knowledgeable uh, base for us. But that was really my first exposure to what we now call the family office. Back then, it was just a really wealthy family that had substantial assets and did a lot of investing and wanted to get into medical. And the most recent one with Bomaris is when I was hired, you know, close to 10 years ago, uh, Franklin Mountain Capital, which was a very, what I call first generation family office, meaning three wealthy individuals who had made a substantial amount of money together uh, started a family office. They took control of a medical device company and then sought a CEO and, and found me. Uh, so again, I was exposed to a family office, but something that I was familiar with. So I think that's first thing is to delineate a family office. I think there's roughly, I've been told, up to 3,000 family offices in the United States. Uh, if you Google the data, they claim that um, these family offices control a wealth of equal to a trillion dollars. So there's a substantial amount of capital that is controlled by these family offices and invested every year. Wow. And, and when we talk about good money versus bad money, this is a big topic in, in med tech where yeah. beyond just simply writing a check and, and when med tech startups are hungry for cash and they need cash, yeah. um, there's this concept of from the investors, there should be something more than just a check where traditional VCs or even VCs in general might be adding their networks, their industry experience, what have you. Same thing with angels. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about family offices, is it the same concept? I mean, I'm going to pull off just at least a word that pops in my head from the story that we talked about yesterday. Um, you know, if, if a company goes and makes a billion dollars or makes a big investment off of something outside of med tech, Walmart, um, and you know they all of a sudden become a very wealthy family or whatever it may be, and they just have maybe a passion project where they want to go invest in something medical for whatever reason. What's the added benefit besides a check that a family office can provide or can't provide? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, again, uh, when we talk about family office, I think it's important to kind of categorize them. So when I talk about a second generation family office, like maybe the Walton family, um, they, they have professional, what I would call med tech or biotech investors 
uh, people that worked on Wall Street, could have been family members, uh, could have been people that they just hired off of Wall Street that were extremely good money managers or analysts. So if they decide to invest in your med tech company, a lot of times they will be, can be as helpful as a venture capitalist because they have worked in the business and they're very familiar with the space. In terms of other family offices, they might be generalists where they don't have a lot of med tech experience and they, they want to do impact investing, meaning that maybe, maybe they want to invest in a stroke or aneurysm company because one of their family members had a stroke and they want to be able to invest in that space or a cardiac company or whatever. And so they won't have that domain knowledge. So to the terms of, of whether or not it's good money or bad money, I think that when you're dealing with a family office, uh, my experience has been, and there's been other family offices that have invested with the family offices that I just mentioned, but I think in general, you're going to get uh, a high integrity, high quality investment that maybe they don't have the domain knowledge, but usually, you know, in terms of the Stevens family or Franklin Mountain Capital, you know, billionaires hang out with billionaires or know each other and they, they can plug you into certain things and investment bankers and whatnot through different channels. But, you know, if you're looking for someone with a lot of domain operational experience, that family office might not have that. Uh, so it's just something to be cognizant of as you look at your investment mix if you're a CEO of I've got really experienced capital, maybe I've got some inexperienced capital, but the family office, usually the the integrity and the quality of the capital is going to be very high quality. And what about the, the nature of the terms? So I had a conversation not too long ago from someone who's representing a corporate investment division in one of the majors, one of the okay. corporate strategics. Yeah. And I asked a similar question. Um, when you compare against a classic or traditional VC, right? So that typically yep. has a time horizon. They have LPs yep. to answer to. They have ROI that they have to bring in and, and make money. That's the whole point. Yep. Um, I asked the question, are the terms that you get from a corporate division, for example, as draconian or as aggressive as a traditional VC firm? And, and he was really great at explaining the differences. Um, when you talk about a family office and especially ones that it might be more of a passion project to your point of someone maybe had affected by a stroke and yeah. that's why they want to invest in that rather than having the domain knowledge, or maybe they even do. Yeah. Um, when it comes from being a wealthy individual, how would you generally categorize the terms when you work with a, with a family office? Are they as aggressive as, and as trying to take as much as they possibly can, like a VC would? I mean, I mean, I'm certainly, I mean, you know, my end of family offices, right, might be fairly small to the several thousand are out there. I'm sure they can be. But in general, if you're dealing with the family members or the founders of the family office, one thing you have to remember is generally at one time, they were just like you. Maybe they were raising capital. You know, they, they built businesses, so they do the ins and outs. So they're probably less likely to have such pejorative terms because they only answer to their family or maybe they just answer to themselves. So I'm sure you should be ready to negotiate and drive a, a good bargain for your company, but they may not be quite as, quite as draconian as that, that venture firm that's got LPs and got people to report to and all things like that. But you know, they're still gonna drive a hard bargain, but generally they, were, they run and operate businesses like, like you do. So they're gonna they're gonna take come at it with that perspective. And 
then just to get this stereotype or this notion out of the way that most people don't even think about family offices. Like I'll tell you an example. Um, I had been sharing lists on LinkedIn with my network on venture yeah. capitalists and angel groups, et cetera. And, and people were obviously heavily interested, right? Just to see who was on the list and if they could reach yeah. out. But there was this one time I posted this list of family offices and people went nuts. And it was like something that came out of the woodwork where it was impossible to find and they never knew how to find it. And, and where did you get that from? And all that kind of stuff where it wasn't as obvious. And this whole notion, the reason why I bring that up is this whole notion of family offices being an option for startups out there. It's such like an enigma. To yeah. most. Why? Why does that? Why? I, I think... Um... You know, it's, it's largely a lot of times an independent network, the family office, number one. Number two is, you know, they're, they're, you know there's family office starting all the time. A lot of times it's, it's quiet money. Um, you know, you sometimes have to be referred into a family office to even get their attention. So they don't a lot of times put their stake out, you know, and, and advertise that they're, some of them don't have websites. Um, so I think it's, it's just one of those things where people aren't aware sometimes of the massive amounts of wealth. And I think if you're a venture, if you're an entrepreneur in med tech, whatever state you're in, you should know who the families are in your state that have a family office. Um, and it's, you can get it from lawyers might know that you're a lawyer who does med tech, your uh, investment bankers may know, um, you know, you can get referrals from various sources, but you know, California, for instance, I was told has 124 family offices. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm new to Arizona here, moving over here from California, but you know, there's two right off the top of my head in California or here in Arizona, they're substantial. The, the crown family that were the founders of Intuit software have a substantial family office. And of course, Franklin mountain capital. I mean, that's, that's just two. I, I guarantee you there's several more here. Uh, if you would find out, uh, if, if somebody would dig deep enough that there's family offices. So I think it, it, it requires some networking and, you know, it's probably a good, if you've got a nice idea and somebody refers you into a family office, it's probably a really good thing because it, they is past the sniff test. And you, you stole the answer and actually answered the question that I was just about to ask, but just to bring a clear summary to that, then um, for that person out there who wants to take a family office into consideration, there is no Google or laundry list or something out there that just makes it super easy. I mean, this is all pulling strings and networking. I, I, I think so, because like I said, they don't, some family offices, the reason they don't advertise is because they don't want to be known in the community as getting all these pitch decks and having to say no all the time. So that a lot of times they're very selective in who they talk to and what they invest in. And they're, they're very quiet about how they go about their business. Um, whereas a venture capitalist wants to, wants to get deal flow and look at a lot of deals your family office may not want to do that, uh, or they have very targeted investing and they, they kind of know what they want to look at. So I think you're, you're exactly right. It's not something you can get a Google list and say, okay, here, who's all the family offices in the, in the state of California? Maybe you can find one. Um, but there's also offices that don't advertise or anything and have, you know, a team of investment professionals. They just, you know, they're just not, not out there uh, wanting to get, you know, looking at a hundred deals. And I know it depends, but generally speaking, again, um, when, when you have VCs or very industry-focused investors who bring value and they want to have yeah. everything when they when they work on their terms, yeah. including taking a board seat, yep. uh, is that typically, from your personal experience and just your other experience outside of your personal experience that you're aware of, 
do they also require a board seat or are they one of these silent investors where it's like, hey, listen, I have some industry experience or I have none. Here's my money. I definitely want to see this through, but I'm not going to be as valuable if I sit on your board. I, I think a couple of things. From my experience, um, they've wanted board seats. And number two is in terms of like Franklin Mountain Capital, not only do they want a board seat, they're going to control the majority of the company and they're going to be very selective on if you want to bring on other board members of who they are and what they bring to the table because they have reached a point in their careers where, you know, they might not like a hedge fund or they might not like a venture capitalist for whatever reason or whatever. And they don't necessarily may want to bring them on the board of a company. So I think the one thing you have to remember with a family office of the super high net worth people is no matter how successful your venture is, more than likely you are not going to change the trajectory of the wealth of that family office. You're just not. Because if, you know, they have a, you know, the Stevens family might be worth several billion dollars or the Walton family, what, 50, 60 billion dollars, you know, there, there's a lot more other considerations that they have other than just what the return's going to be. Who are the people involved? Uh, why do you want to bring somebody on? The capital that you may want to attract, what they think about that capital. Maybe they, maybe they want to put the capital in instead. So there's going to be a lot other considerations than just um, somebody shows up and wants to put capital in the company. There, there's a lot more to that, uh, to that family network, family office. I mean, they, they have a brand that they've established through their wealth, more likely than not. They have a style that they've established and they have, you know, kind of standards and they will not, they will not waver on those standards. So you, you should know that as a CEO, that that's going to be really important to that family office of their brand of who they are. So you bring up a really interesting point about potentially not moving the needle, no matter how successful the company is. And, and it dovetails into the question that I wanted to ask, which is, um, at least from a headhunter's perspective, sometimes when I hear of companies who are family run, even the okay. operators within the family are, are family, yeah. and you have an outsider come in that they want to hire externally, and yeah. it either works and it's a love affair, or it quickly doesn't work because it's you're never going to be part of the family or the family yeah. really just pushes everything and yeah. it's family. And then there's everybody else. Yeah. Once again, not necessarily specific to your experience, but speaking in general, is this a possibility where if a family office who whatever med tech startup, you can't really move the needle of their net worth or their ultimate wealth, no matter how successful your startup is, if they do own the majority of the company, or if there is that heavy influence of them on the board making the decision, does it have that, or could it have that family effect versus everyone else? Do you feel that? Well, I think I think it's for the CEO, depending on your family office, you should definitely, that's an important dynamic. I will tell you in the specific instance of the family offices that I've worked with, um, they were very, very uh, careful to not force even a vendor on the company to use, okay? So that that was clear, clearly stated upfront and when you were in the company that if they knew a vendor that could help you, you interviewed them. If you wanted to use them, great. Uh, I've never in my experience had any, um, any, family, any family member of the family office I've dealt with want me to hire anyone or really they have both situations is they expect you 
to be the expert and for you to run the business. And if you can't run the business, then you're probably not the right person, but you need to be able to be very competent in running a med device business. Um, so you need to have your, your basics down pretty good because like you said about their domain knowledge, you know, if you need a quality regulatory consultant, they're not going to be the ones that say, oh, use XYZ out of Boston. You're going to have to know who to use. So you're going to have to network with other CEOs and find out who to use and recommend it to your board. So I think it all depends upon the family office, but um, you know, they want to, they want to uh, make an impact with their investing. They want to win. Definitely. They want to win. They want to make a return, but they also want to talk about your product or your company in terms of pride of what they're investing in. And so that it's very important to them about that aspect. So being at a proverbial cocktail party and saying I invested in a new heart valve company when, you know, my relationship or a family member recently passed from a heart valve company, it may or may not be successful, but the fact is they're making an impact investment based on something that's personal to them. They like that. That's what you're talking about. I think in some instances, but they want to do the due diligence to know they can make a difference, right? I mean, these people have been tremendously successful taking on hard projects. So they're not deterred if somebody says, wow, that's a really hard thing or things like that. They're used to things being hard. Um, so they just want to make sure they're making the right decisions and that they've got the right people in there doing the right job. Before I go into my next series of questions, I, I'm just getting this feeling based on, on how human you're making this, but it, because they're family offices, there, there seems to be this feeling of um, much more of like a human notion or human feeling when you're dealing with these people rather than like a business as a VC or another alternative style of investor coming from a corporate maybe. It, yeah. it feels very personal. Uh, yeah, if you want me to diverge, I can tell a little story that I think would personify that. Absolutely. Please um, do. Would love it. But, um, many years ago when I was with uh, Basker Solutions and heading up the sales, we had went public and it was a very successful IPO. We missed our numbers subsequently after that. And the stock went from, I, I'm just out of memory now, went from probably $21 a share down to lower than $3 a share. And um, we, we had clinical problems with the product, nonetheless, but I was working in the field one day in Little Rock, Arkansas. And because I was young and, and kind of naive, I just thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm here in town. I should call up, um, you know, Warren Stevens, the, the second generation son and, and his lieutenants and, and let them know I'm in town and I want to stop over and, and give them an update. And so I didn't think of it. So I got a call back and they would receive me at a certain time. So I went over there to the Stevens headquarters and I walked into his enormous office and he had probably four or five people in there. And I sat down and, uh, you know, said, how are things were going? And I said, well, we've been having some issues and, uh, you know, we've got a plan in place and I don't know what story I gave him, but he looked at me and, you know, I won't use the word, but he's, you know, basically it was, I'll paraphrase it like, I can't believe that you would have the guts to come in my office when your stock is three bucks and sit here today and talk to me about what the hell you're doing. And I, the, the room was so quiet. And, and I think he could see that I literally, I think all the color went out of my face. I almost felt like literally I was going to either be sick or faint because I was just so taken back by his, his tone. And I think he sensed that I was about to, you know, throw up or cry or whatever. And everybody in the room burst out laughing. And 
he quickly reminded, he said, I'm really just joking with you, Mike. And, and I still was so confused. And he said, I can't tell you how much respect I have that you took the time to come in here today and to meet with me. And I still was still confused about what he was saying. He said, no, here's the, here's the story, Mike. You wouldn't believe how many people we give money to and invest in businesses and things go wrong and we never hear from them or never see them again. And it took a lot of guts for you to come in here today and to tell us what you're doing. We sure hope we got a lot of money in Vastra Solutions. We sure hope that you turn it around and, and figure it out. And Jim's on the board and, and we certainly hear about it, but we, we appreciate you hanging in there. And that probably personifies the difference or what I think of a, of a family office or anybody else. I mean, I've never had somebody tell me to hang in there when the stock, I mean, I expected to maybe tell them that, tell me that if things weren't better, I was going to get fired. Um, but I mean, that, that's a, just a different approach of a family office and kind of how they look at things. And I was told that I think they hold on to their stock holdings for 20 years to the day Vastra Solutions was sold before they exited the investment. So they have a long-term horizon. And um, I think to step back a minute, I think with a family office, what a CEO should be prepared for is they have a brand and they have a presence in the communities that they serve. They also have a brand and presence about, about them themselves into the, the general public. And, um, you know, like I think the Stevens family said, you know, we've got our name in every town across Arkansas because they did financial planning. And so you just need to remember that, that your conduct, your integrity, how you run a business, how you treat your employees uh, and everything is vitally important and it better personify their brand. Because if it doesn't, you probably won't last very long with them because that's very important to them. Um, so it's just, you know, something I've always carried with me. I've never forgot that. Probably one of the most memorable meetings I've had in my whole med tech career uh, and such a valuable lesson in appreciating what, you know, what, what they're investing means um, and, and the, type of, the type of leadership that these people can bring because they have been successful. They have been through a lot most of the time. And so they can impart that upon a business, whether they know about it a lot or not, but they certainly know about when, when things go bump in the night. So thank you for that story. That was, that personified it perfectly. And, and I felt it. I'm sure the audience did. Um, I want to ask a, a, a question that will likely have duplicative efforts of what we've already accomplished, but just to summarize it in your experience for all those entrepreneurs listening out there now, what would you say are the benefits of having a family office? I'd say a couple of things is uh, a family office. I, I was writing some things down before the call. I think that um, looking for capital, I mean, obviously uh, venture capitalists, the due diligence can, can go very long and very extensive. And I think that from what I found, the family offices that I've dealt with can make a decision quicker uh, because a lot of times just their, their committees are a lot smaller. You might be dealing with the principal of the family office, uh, like Franklin Mountain Capital, there's three people and they make all the investment decisions. They don't have anybody else make them for them. The Stevens family obviously had their analysts and their second generation, but, but things came fairly quick there. So they, they didn't mess around if they wanted to make an investment. So I think for the CEO, I think there's a time factor. Uh, number two is, I think for the CEO, there's, there's a portion of it, although they want to make a return. I don't want to, don't want to diminish the fact that every family office wants to make a return but there is something there for impact investing. And if you've got the right product or the right area, 
you know, there may be where they're investing it more than just a return on capital. Uh, thirdly is their time horizon can be vastly different than that of a venture capitalist. You don't have to deal with a different fund. You know, funds run out of money and, you know, you, you, know, you run into CEOs out where the, the venture guys are out of funds or whatever. So they don't, they don't have that usually. Um, and they can also help you bring in other family offices or maybe friends that they have. Right. I mean, they fly in high places and they know, you know, this family office or that family office and a phone call to a particular family office. And is a huge introduction for you to go down and pitch your device. So I think those three things are pretty critical uh, about the time and not only the investment, you might have a longer horizon. Uh, and number two is it, you're, you're going to maybe the due diligence process may not be as long. However, I will say like every CEO, good CEO is you need to thoroughly vet and discuss with the family office the total expectations of why they want to invest in med tech. So I think that's really critical. And while we're on the topic of the benefits, let's flip that on its head. For all those listening out there as, and taking into consideration about the downsides of other styles of money, venture capital, yep. angels, yep. whatever it may be, what could be potentially some of the downsides of having a family office as an investor? Uh, one is you already mentioned, if, if they don't have domain expertise in med device, you will not get that guidance that you would from a venture capital board that may be sitting, you know, with five or six medical device investments that can give you a lot of wealth and knowledge or turn you on to a, um, uh, turn you on to a vendor or something that may be critical. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two is, I think it's important because, you know, if you want to bring on more capital to grow it faster, you know, maybe that maybe that's not their objective. Maybe they maybe they don't want to put in that level of capital and don't want to bring on, you know, that hedge fund out of New York that they maybe don't want to sit on a board with. So I think you clearly define, you know, those are all usually things that you can talk about up front uh, because their pace may be different than yours and they may see uh, the growth of the business very different, right? So I don't, I don't, I don't know if that is any different than a, a venture capitalist, right? But you just need to understand those things about what ultimately they want to they want to do the, with the business. Do they are they favorable to a public offering? Would they rather just do a quiet exit? Do they want to do a consolidation? Maybe the family office wants to go out and combine other companies with with the one you have. Um, so I think that's the down the, the downside though would definitely be you're not going to get the domain expertise, and you know there might be preferences of one family member or one family office or two family offices and not having four or five venture capitalists, which sometimes can be helpful when you're trying to exit, right? They know the business development people, maybe it's some other companies for you. Usually the family offices, if they're first generation, might not have that domain expertise to help you. And so you also mentioned this time um, component, meaning how long the due diligence period might take. And this is a question that I've asked with various styles of investors so far. So I would be really yeah. interested in this. Once again, going back to the corporate strategic investor, it's going to that corporate notion of things maybe take a little bit of time, move a little slower. And what we got out of there is from the time that you actually get introduced to a corporate investor, yeah. potentially the time that the money could hit the bank could be upwards of six months. Oh, easily. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, well, not necessarily the flip side, but somewhat shorter, I've talked to angel groups that they've invested in money as quickly as three weeks and the typical process is maybe a couple months ish. 
and they do have sometimes these circuits, rodeo shows, if you will, where yeah. they, they have um, dates where they only every two months, they put a slew of startups in front of them. They make their decisions to progress them forward, et cetera. And if yeah. you miss that window, um, yeah. it could either protract it out or could actually eliminate you entirely, especially if the startup has only a certain window of time of which they want to raise their own funds. So when we talk about the timing of working with a family office on raising capital, what does that process typically look at from the time that you get introduced to them to the time the money hits the bank, typically? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if I have a big enough end, but I will, I'll share one more story. I'm starting to sound old, but to give you an example, I had, um, before I was hired to be CEO of Volmeris, I had had a couple of phone conversations with Paul Foster, and then we determined that we would meet. And uh, when I was living in Southern California, I flew into Southern California, and we met for about two, two and a half hours. And I was getting up to leave expecting, you know, right, usually to, they're going to interview maybe three to five CEOs. And what's the CEO search take? What, three to five months? Uh, and Paul um, basically offered me the job on the spot and said he would have a contract employment agreement to me in the next two weeks. Right. So that, I mean, the retained search firm that was working on the deal, you know, called them back and they were stunned that 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 was happening and they were fine with it. But things can happen very quickly because you're dealing with a decision maker. Now, with that said, when you're looking for capital, rule number one, I always tell every entrepreneur if they come to me is, boy, you know, you always want to tell them about your deal, but tell them what you're going to do. And then you're going to meet with them again. And you want to make sure that you tell them you did what you said you were going to do the first time you met. So if you tell them in one month, you're going to do this, this, and this, when you meet with them again, Nothing will solidify your standing with somebody if you say we've accomplished A, B, and C. Maybe if you didn't, it's because of capital, but it is essential that you establish a rhythm with any family office or any investor that you're getting things done. But, but I think in general, you know, depending upon how you enter that family office, you know, through a recommendation or whatever, you know, you should plan on 90 days, but also to the family office, you need to be upfront with them about, okay, for me to get my goals done, I'm looking for capital in this amount of time. Um, and hopefully it's reasonable because if you walk in and say, I need something in two weeks, they're probably going to scare them. But I, I don't think, I, I think, you know, two to three months is not long because you got documents and, you know, term sheets going back and forth and everything. So, you know, I, I'm not so sure, you, you know, I mean, it's still going to take you, they're still going to vet the, the deal out. Um, yeah. It'd be hard for me. I can't remember with, with Steven, I mean, I, I would say two to three months. You okay. know? Yeah. And before I forget, cause I, ha I know my next question, um, from what you're aware of outside of your personal experience, do they also typically like to lead or do they don't, they don't mind co-investing or following on? I think it all depends upon the family office. You know, here I've got a family office that not only likes to lead, likes to control. I think the Stevens family, we had other venture capitalists around the table. So they obviously didn't mind having other, other investors, um, you know, they want to make sure they get their fair share. They certainly can lead and they certainly can follow. Um, and I think they're going to look at the valuation and the terms of that and make sure that they're in the best interest of the family. Uh, so I think, I think it can be any all, I'm not sure there's any hard and fast rules on whether they're better leads or follow-ons or whatever. I, I think it's all on the family office of what role they want to play. And that also might be the answer to my next question, but just I, I want to get that out there just in case. So 
the size of the ticket, right? I mean, if you're talking about family offices that are worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, which are typically larger than even some incredibly large venture funds. Right. That's right. Uh, is it is it really up to their discretion? I mean, once again, whether it's a passion project or not, can a family office act as a seed investor, act as a series A small early stage investor, or can they also lead a crossover round that's for a company that's going right before public and they're raising $100 million and maybe they could take on the whole thing. I mean, what's the typical size of the ticket? Yeah, you know, I don't, you know, that'd be a good question. I don't know the typical size of the ticket. I know that from my own, uh, in both family offices, they both have done deals where they were absolute seed rounds, like basically like giving seed money from incubator. Um, and then they also did, you know, follow on rounds and everything else. I, I mean, through my association with a, a public, uh, biopharma company I sit on. Um, I can't name the fund, but they talked to some funds that did, uh, you know, private placements in, in biotech. And some of the family offices were interested in investments from 30 to $75 million. I mean, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's a significant amount of, 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 uh, of ticket charge. And so they're, you know, they're, they're, they can be all over. Um, but I think it's just like anything, if you network, and get into it, you you will find of, of who to go to, and you know who might be a, a good target for the CEO uh, to to talk to the family office. And any last minute remarks or comments or piece of advice for those entrepreneurs out there, or even anecdotal stories that you might have for family offices specific. You know, I, I think Jill, I've I've seen some of the things you guys are doing, which is great work for the young entrepreneur, I'm not sure it's any different than, than the fundraising that you'll be doing is to really have to know the best investing I think that is done is where you kind of know your targets before you, you go. So if you're a CEO at MedDevice, you, you should know all the venture capitalists, obviously, but you should know the ones that invest in that particular space, the ones that have had successful exits in that space. So you got to know that. In your local community, by networking through your lawyers or people in general who you're pitching, you know, you probably want to find out who the family offices are. Uh, you know, even though it's very quiet money, um, you, 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 should, you should find out who they are and, and be asking who they are and to find out whether they do med tech, what kind of med tech they do. And you know what? If you go to a family office like anybody else and they say, we really like this, but, you know, maybe it's early stage or maybe it's a, an area we're not interested in, boy, the next question out of my mouth would be, do you know of another family office that might be interested in taking this particular endeavor on? And so I don't know if it's any different than any other raising capital, um, but it's, I, all I, hard. I, it's all hard. And, <laughs> but, but I will say this to young investors, there's never been a better time to finance your deal in med device. And I remember, you know, I'll call myself again, I'll age myself back in the day. You know, there used to be a, a handful of venture capitalists and, you know, you went out to Sand Hill road and got beat up. And, you know, if you had a good device or a good device, they might all get together and, and, and come in with terms that you had to take because you didn't have a lot of options. And, you know, where you, you Minneapolis had just a few of them. And then Boston had, you know, the East coast had a few of them and it was really, really hard. And, you know, and nowadays, I mean, there's funds all over the world that are investing in med device. The pandemic certainly showed there was record numbers of capital that was raised 
during the pandemic because of med tech. People saw that it's a really good business to be in. I'm on the board of another company that got their initial seed money from a family office in Thailand. So, you know, they're, they wanted to invest in US med tech and somebody had a biomaterials background and saw this young company and decided to do their seed round for them of a couple million dollars. So, I mean, you know, there's funds in Abu Dhabi and UAE and Saudi Arabia. There's family funds and funds available all over the world if you work hard enough and you got a good enough concept. So I would say there's, there's just a lot of competition out there for capital nowadays, which is great for entrepreneurs. Um, so I think that's one thing just to keep in mind that if you got a good story, you got a good device and it's addressing the right kind of market with persistence, you'll get it funded. Mike, you and I had a call it's a year ago, a little over a year ago, and you had mentioned this background about being funded by a family office. And, and when I started this project of med tech money and putting these concepts together of interviews of entrepreneurs, investors, and third-party support systems that holistically bring together what looks like for med tech money rate, or I should say med tech startups raising capital, um, I just it stuck in my head that you were funded by a family office. And, and I've been thinking about it. And as soon as I started this project, I immediately reached out to you for this family office perspective. And on this podcast, it, it showed, it radiated, and I definitely reached out to the right person. So I wanted to say thank you very much for being on this show, this podcast, MedTech Money. And this is Mike Nagel, CEO of Vomeris, and obviously a rock star and stud in the MedTech space for decades. So thank you again for being on this show. Uh, show. I appreciate it. Thanks. And I, I think you guys uh, was doing a great job um, of providing such added value of capital raising and how to capital raising. And many of us that got started in this had nowhere near the insights to help uh, budding entrepreneurs as you guys do. So I think it's excellent. And I think if people who are out there who are raising capital really kind of take a tidbit of things from here, uh, I think you guys are doing a tremendous thing for the community to get more med tech deals funded because the more tech deals that get funded, the more successful the industry will be. So I hope I've given one or two people out there just a tidbit of information that may help them, you know, with their next deal. Then this thing, this hour have been worth it. Thank you very much, Mike. Well, once again, this is med tech money where we demystify raising capital. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.